Everybody. If you're wondering why the long intro, the answer is because I'm eating. <laughs> Gotta get my fuel for the show, motherfuckers. Mm. I have some very sad news. I spoke to Jimmy Dore yesterday, and the audio file 
for when I did the Brooklyn show with him, the audio file has been corrupted. So they were unable to salvage it, too. So that means that none of the clips from the live show are uh, actually going to make it onto YouTube. So I'm actually um, really upset by that because I had a great time. And I know the audience had a great time, too. And I wanted everybody to, to see some of the stuff because, God damn it, I was like a comedian, man. I had everybody laughing, which is fun. It's fun to do that. So anyway, um, sad times. I was I was checking his channel yesterday morning. I saw he was uploading some clips of uh, the Wednesday show, and so I texted him, and he said, yeah, man, the, the Tuesday show, audio file corrupted, can't upload any of it. We couldn't save any of it. I was like, uh, so that really sucks. But, mm, today, I have an awesome show for you. We're back to the grind, bitch. I got Bernie Sanders releasing a a sweeping criminal justice reform plan. I'm going to give you all the details of that plan, and you're going to absolutely love it. I mean, there are a handful of parts of the plan that I'm not necessarily on board with, but it's 95% awesomeness, so I I 100% support it. Wait, I sounded like that... I sounded like that scene in, um... What was it, Anchorman? 60% of the time, it works every time. (laughs) That's like me right there. 95% of the bill I agree with, so I'm 100% for it. (laughs) Okay, sorry, I'm making myself laugh here. I just finished my toast, so there will be no more annoying chewing. But I'm going to give you the specifics of his uh, uh, his criminal justice reform bill. Then we're going to talk about his response to Netanyahu going after Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. Then we're going to talk about Bill Maher going after the Justice Democrats and uh, talking about BDS. Um, then we're going to talk about U.S. officials are in talks to draw down in Afghanistan and how a lot of politicians are trying to gaslight on that front and keep us in Afghanistan. I also got Rush Limbaugh on the show today. I got Candace Owens in the show today. Uh Uh-oh. Anthony Scaramucci, the Moose, and then Tap Jaker. So um, sit back, relax, buckle up. We gonna have some fun, bitch. We gonna have some fun, bitch. All right, let's start with the good news. So America's dad, Bernie Sanders, released a sweeping criminal justice reform plan. Um, there's really no other way to describe this, but awesome. Now, there's a handful of parts of the, of the uh, bill that I'm not necessarily on board with, that I'm a little torn on, but I agree with 95% of it, and it's so incredibly bold that I have no choice but to support it. So let's go through it here. Um, first and foremost, end cash, bail, and civil asset forfeiture. Let me breeze through it, and then we'll go back and talk about them. Uh, ban for-profit prisons. Increase the number of public defenders and funding to better serve certain communities. Provide more support for law enforcement and unarmed non-law enforcement as an alternative response system for mental health emergencies. 
ban the use of facial recognition software in policing, conduct a U.S. Attorney General's investigation whenever someone is killed in police custody, create a prisoner bill of rights for incarcerated people that would end solitary confinement and guarantee living wages, educational training, and the right to vote, end mandatory uh, sentencing minimums and three strikes laws, uh, abolish the death penalty, legalize marijuana, stop the criminalization of homelessness, and spend more than $25 billion over five years to end homelessness. Um, and overall, ultimately, the goal is to reduce the prison population by about 50%. So it's, uh, you know, the idea is let's get all the nonviolent drug offenders and the nonviolent offenders out of prison because they're not really criminals. So let's stop pretending like they are and let's do the right thing here and give people their freedom back. Um, so that's awesome, and that's incredibly bold. I mean, a, a major presidential candidate saying reduce the prison population by about half and giving these hard-hitting, you know, really strong proposals that are, have really not been allowed in the national conversation for a long time. I mean, this is total shifting the Overton window type stuff here, and that's what Bernie does best. So uh, now... Now let's go through them and, and get a little bit more specific. When it comes to end cash bail and civil asset forfeiture, it's a no-brainer to me. So cash bail is really, if you think about it, the whole point of, of that system is let's bias the criminal justice system in favor of the rich because who can afford bail? Wealthy people. <laughs> who can't afford it? Poor people. So, that I mean, that's like... It's baked into the cake of the system. So if you really believe that justice is blind and you really believe that, you know, we should treat everybody equally under the law, well, then you can't have a system that just so brazenly um, makes it worse for poor folks and better for rich folks. So uh, ending cash bail is huge. Civil asset forfeiture is also just gigantic to end that. I refer to that as legalized robbery by cop because that's exactly what it is. They're allowed to say, hey, I think you're about to use your property and your cash um, in, in an illegal activity. Like, I, I'm just going to assume that you are about to do a drug deal. So I'm going to just confiscate everything you have. I'm going to take your car. I'm going to take the $6,000 you got in the glove box, and I'm going to flip the burden of proof and say, you can't even get this back. There's not even going to be a clear process set up for you to get this back. So it, it really is flipping due process on its head and legalizing robbery by cop to the point where more uh, property is taken through civil asset forfeiture every year than is taken through burglary, which is a hard thing to wrap your mind around. That's like saying legalized robbery is a bigger problem than robbery robbery. So the cops do it, but since they're wearing uniforms and a badge, they think it's totally cool. So, again, no-brainer. Bernie's 100% correct. Banning for-profit prisons. Oh, my God, don't even get me started. This one's easy. This is a layup. I mean, when we talk about certain things that should be off the table in a civilized society, away from the profit motive, probably thing number one on that list. Well, actually, I'd argue healthcare is number one on that list. But right in the top five there is, um, is prisons. Because what you're doing when you have private for-profit prisons is you're setting up an incentive in the system. And that incentive is 
hey, you'll make more money if you lock up more people. So what happens? The lobbyists for the for-profit prison industry go and give money to politicians and, and give them campaign contributions and say, hey, listen, there's a business model for us here. We need more asses and more beds. So maybe pass a three-strikes law. So if somebody commits three felonies, no matter how minor the offenses are, they go to jail for life. So it's just a perverse incentive structure where you have, you know, you make it profitable literally for people to be locked up. So you're going to have, you know, this movement towards getting more things illegal and locking people up for more and more frivolous reasons. And that's what we've seen. And on top of that, the conditions in the for-profit prisons have been proven that they're disastrous. I mean, I remember covering stories years ago about how the food was uh, tainted and it was old and it was moldy and there were rats where they stored the food and they didn't care. They didn't care and they'd rather just serve the inmates that shitty food, you know, to make an extra buck than buy new food. And they were able to get away with it because it was the, it was the nature of the system. It's a for-profit prison system. So banning those, again, is a no-brainer. Uh, increasing the number of public defenders and, and funding to better serve downtrodden communities, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. Public defenders have a reputation of generally being pretty shitty. I guess the idea is to make them better. Um, provide more support for law enforcement and unarmed non-law enforcement as an alternative response system for mental health emergencies. I guess the idea behind that is, hey, let's not immediately rush towards pulling out our weapons and assuming uh, nefarious malintent at every turn. Let's retrain officers and make it so that there's more de-escalation tactics, particularly when it comes to a mental health crisis. Let's actually set up a system where mental health is addressed and not just flat out criminalized. Because there's a lot of people, particularly who are homeless, who are on the street, and it's all because they have severe mental health issues, but they're treated more as you know, nefarious criminals than people who need help, and Bernie's trying to change that game. Um, banning the use of facial recognition software in policing. I mean, this is a little bit of, you know, you see the writing on the wall, you see what's going to happen in the future, some 1984-like stuff, and he's like, well, let's just nip this in the bud. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible to put that genie back in that bottle, but at least Bernie's trying. Conduct a U.S. Attorney General investigation whenever someone is killed in police custody. This is something that's been talked about for a long time in left-wing circles. The idea that every time you have a police officer who kills usually some unarmed black kid, they go, oh, that's no, cool, bro. We're just going to do an internal investigation over here. Internal investigation. So that means Bob is going to investigate Jerry. And Bob and Jerry, you know, usually watch the Super Bowl together and their families hang out. So what do you think is going to happen? You think the police department is going to internally investigate themselves and go, you know what? This was murder and we must take action. No, not going to happen. They're going to they're gonna look out for their own. So the idea is you should have, you know, a special prosecutor, a special investigation. The federal government should step in anytime this happens. And this way you have at least some semblance of independence and objectivity where you might actually get people searching for the right answer. So um, that, I think, is incredibly important. Creating a prisoner's bill of rights for incarcerated people. I mean, that's important, too, because, I mean, it really is the case that once people get locked up for a crime, no matter how minor the crime might be, there's this mindset that's pervasive in society where we go, well, whatever, they, got, they deserve whatever's coming to them because they're criminals. And that is certainly not the way that Bernie Sanders thinks, and he thinks there, there should be some basic human rights um, that are provided and that the government must abide by, and um, that would include ending solitary confinement, 
So I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, paying a living wage, I mean, if they're going to work, yeah, you should, they should get a living wage. Because right now, and this is where all the talk comes about, like, literally slavery in our prison system still. They had people, you know, fight California wildfires who were prisoners, and they were getting paid, like, cents per hour. And it's like, well, that's kind of forced labor, isn't it? <laughs> like, that's kind of like slavery, isn't it? So if you're going to have them work, yeah, they should be compensated for that work. I mean, because they did, they may have done something terrible in their lives doesn't mean that then you can treat them as slaves, and that's totally fine. I mean, some people would argue, yes, I am fine with that, but I would disagree with that. I would say slavery is probably okay under no circumstance. Call me crazy. Um, ending mandatory uh, minimum sentences and three strikes laws. Again, that's a no-brainer. The three strikes laws were lobbied for by the private prison industry to, to try to get more butts in more beds. Um, mandatory minimum sentences, of course, basically take agency away from the judges to use reason based on an individual case. It's like, no, if, if they do this, then you have to, at the very le least, give them X amount of time in prison. And what they were finding is it was way too punitive. And people were going to prison for a long time when they shouldn't. So this gets rid of that. And also, by the way, we should point out, it's been proven that um, mandatory minimums have been applied in a, in a racially biased, racist way, where if you have a white person and a black person and they commit the same crime, um, you would have the black person getting a lot more time in prison. So, again, same crime, but one person gets less time, the other person gets more time. So this is a way to try to, you know, chip away at that terrible dynamic and, and fix it. He says abolish the death penalty. That's a no-brainer in the sense that at least there was a study that came out a few years back, at least 4% of the people on death row are innocent. So you can never set up a system where you have the death penalty and you know you always get somebody who's guilty. There's always going to be the chance for some innocent people to slip through the cracks, and 4% is an incredibly high percentage. So since that's the case, I, you know, I can't have a system where my tax dollars go towards killing innocent people because that would mean I'm funding murder. So I'm not okay with that. You shouldn't be okay with that either. It makes perfect sense. You know, uh, some lefties have disagreed with me because what I've said is, in theory, like the idea of somebody who's the most vicious criminal you can imagine, imagine somebody who, like, murders and disembowels little children and does it for fun and has, you know, done it to 30 kids. I, I'm not, I don't go that next lefty step of saying, like, it's equally wrong to kill him back. Well, no, because I think there's a weird argument there for it's kind of defensive in nature from society to get rid of that guy because he's obviously incapable of living in society and not doing something like that. There's obviously some weird thing that's going on where he's almost drawn to do that and he can't not do it. So I don't, like, in theory, I'd be totally fine with killing that person. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if we have the death penalty, we will also kill people who are innocent, and so that's why I can't have the death penalty. But I'm definitely of the mind that, like, I don't care. Fuck that person. I hate him. <laughs> so um, I'm not going to lose sleep if that person gets the death penalty, but I will at the same time argue for systemic change where we do get rid of the death penalty. 
And again, I know there are some lefties who disagree with me and say, no, you gotta, you know, you should be against it in all cases equally, but that's just not the way I think. But it's okay, don't worry, take yes for an answer. I'm still with you on the bigger picture, and I'm still with you in fighting for that policy change because, again, we get innocent people, and that I, I can't, I can't stand and I can't take. Um, now, also legalize marijuana is part of this no-brainer. Stop the criminalization of homelessness um, and spend more than $25 billion over five years to end homelessness. This is huge because homelessness is an issue that's not really talked about that much in electoral politics in the U.S. because there's no – politicians see it as, oh, there's no benefit for me. I don't get any benefit from this. Homeless people don't vote. So instead, all they'll do is talk about the middle class, the middle class, the middle class, the middle class. And you should talk about the middle class. But you should also talk about homelessness. You should also talk about poverty. Because these are incredibly serious issues, and they need to be addressed. And Bernie's taking that step of saying, no, let's actually fight to try to end homelessness. And it's a bold plan. It's an intelligent plan. I love it. The plan to fight back against the criminalization of homelessness is just as important. Uh, they've made it so it's illegal to feed homeless people in certain places. Why? Because they say, oh, my God, you're affecting, the, you're affecting the real estate value of the surrounding houses. Nobody's going to want to buy the house if this, if this upper middle class person moves. Nobody's going to want to buy that house because they know two blocks away they're feeding the homeless. So this is Bernie saying, hey, let's stop the criminalization of homelessness. Let's stop the, you know, those laws where it's like you can't sit on a bench for X amount of hours and the whole idea is to be against homeless people. We can actually address this in a better way, in a more humane way. You don't have to be punitive all the time. You could make it so that we actually care about the humanity of these people and we put a roof over everybody's head. And you also get the benefit of the thing that other people talk about, which is, hey, we need to clean up the streets and we need to make it so that, you know, the place looks attractive. Well, you can achieve that and save money by, give, you know, giving homeless people all a roof over their head. So it's the correct answer from a moral perspective, an ethical perspective, and a fiscal perspective. Because studies have shown it saves money when you do that. Um, and then, finally, the, the reducing the prison population by 50%. Bold, strong, intelligent, the best plan by far of anybody. Um, the only thing I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I still don't know what I think about the issue. Uh, what I was referring to there is the, the voting rights situation while incarcerated. And that was, we had that debate, we had that discussion a while ago when Bernie was asked a trick question and he walked right into the trap. Was, oh, hey, should, should, the, um, should the Boston Marathon bomber be able to vote while in prison? And he was like, yeah, I, I think so, yes. <laughs> and, you know, I did a long segment, hey, here's how Bernie could have answered that question where he's not, you know, hiding the ball with what his beliefs are, but he's also being a little bit more politically savvy in how he dealt with it. Because that was a scandal for two or three days, and that is not an answer. I, we looked at the polling, and the American people are like, they don't think that it's a crazy idea to say while they're incarcerated, they cannot vote. Because think about it. When you're locked up, when you're in prison, there are plenty of other you know, freedoms and rights that you no longer get while you're locked up. That doesn't mean that you'll never get them back. In fact, I would argue vociferously with anybody who says, and some conservatives say, they should forever lose their right to vote. No, no. Definitely not that. But is there a conversation to be had as to what the, you know, what the rule should be? And I think I polled you guys, and I don't remember what the response was. But I think the response was, um, I think it was like a mixed response where people said, hey, let all of the nonviolent offenders vote while they're in prison and let everybody vote when they're out of prison. 
but for people who committed murder or, or terrorism or, or very serious felony crimes, while they're in prison, it's not a crazy idea to not let them vote. Um, so now, again, listen, the thing about Bernie is even when, you know, you might disagree with him, he's going to tell you exactly what he thinks, and he's going to make an argument for it, which is incredibly refreshing. Um, so it is what it is, and that's his belief. But for me personally, I still don't know what I believe on that issue. I lean towards what I think you guys said. My gut reaction tells me that, um, first and foremost, obviously everybody should be able to vote once, you know, if you're out of prison. So you serve your time and then you get out 100%, you should be able to vote. It should never be taken away permanently. Um, but while in prison for the, the worst kind of crimes, I don't think it's an egregious outrage that, you know, you're not allowed to vote if you committed quadruple murder um, while you're in prison. So that's what I lean towards, but I could be convinced in, in either direction, and, and I'm open to hearing arguments in either direction. But either way, you know, minor disagreements I have with Bernie here and there, they're lar largely irrelevant because I agree with like 95% of the plan. And, it, you know, it is honestly almost the perfect plan. It's almost the perfect plan. So he's going to work, man. Bernie's going to work. And it's great to see. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how much this helps him moving forward. You know? Is this something that's going to get a lot of media attention? No. Because they don't care about policy substance. They don't care about specifics. They don't care about things that would actually fix the country. So this is not like a sexy story of like one of Donald Trump's tweets. So it's not going to get that much press. But that's why you guys are here. Because it's your job to spread the word, you know, just get the information out there as much as humanly possible. Because this is stuff that changes people's minds and makes them want to vote for somebody like Bernie. And they just need to hear about it. You just need to give people that option and let them know that this is on the menu. This is on the table. So once they know that, that's when he starts gaining more and more support. So spread the word. Let everybody know that he's swinging for the fences and he's doing a really good job and this is an awesome plan. Okay. Okie dokie, bitch. Bitch. Next. Now let's go to Bernard responding to the Israeli government. So Bernie Sanders responded to Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli government banning Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, um, and he did not hold back. Uh, Senator, good to see you. Uh, what's your reaction to President Trump asking the president of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, to do this and Netanyahu obliging? Well, I wish I could tell you, Ali, that I am shocked uh, I am not. We have a president who tragically is a racist, uh, is a xenophobe, and who is a religious bigot. But the idea 
that a member of the United States Congress cannot visit a nation, which, by the way, we support to the tune of billions and billions of dollars, is clearly an outrage. And if Israel doesn't want members of the United States Congress to visit their country to get a first-hand look at what's going on, and I've been there many, many times, but if he doesn't want members to visit, maybe he can respectfully decline the billions of dollars uh, that we, we give to Israel. Over time, uh, in excess of $140 billion last year alone, $3 billion in various types of aid, you've actually suggested that that might be used to leverage uh, some of Israel's behavior that, that uh, Representatives Omar and Tlaib are critical of, as you've been critical of. Well, all that I am saying is that we need a Middle East policy which is even-handed, which protects the independence and the safety of Israel but also shows respect to the Palestinian people, many of whom in Gaza and elsewhere are suffering incredibly. Unemployment rate off the charts. People cannot leave their community. And I think what the United States should be doing, especially with the enormous amount of money we're spending there, is to demand that Israel uh, and the Palestinian leadership sit down and start working out uh, their differences and create peace uh, in that troubled region. Just so you know, Bernie is one of the only politicians who speaks about Palestinians in that way, who speaks about Palestinians as if they're actual human beings and he cares, talking about the unemployment rate, um, and that's refreshing to hear. Now, in terms of the substance there, I was joking earlier in the day on Twitter, and I said, you know, uh, President Bernard to Bibi Netanyahu uh, that's a nice multi-billion subsidy you got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. So I was joking as if, like, Bernie would threaten the, the multi-billion dollar subsidy because of how the Israeli government is treating Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and also what they're doing to the Palestinians. And then Bernie that night goes on TV and basically says the thing that I was joking about. <laughs> He's like, well, maybe they can return the money. Maybe they can return the money if they're, you know, um, if they're not going to let in our Congress people. Again, 100% the only candidate who would say something like this. Without a doubt. He's in, he, listen, he's in another league, man. The dude's in another league. And to, to touch on that issue more generally, the issue of, uh, you know, Netanyahu and the Israeli government initially banning Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. It was actually hilarious to me because what's the argument you hear all the time from Israel? <laughs> Who broke us? Only democracy in the Middle East, and we believe in freedom and liberty. And then they turn around and say, I don't like your politics and your personal opinions, so I'm going to ban you, U.S. Congress people. We believe in freedom and tolerance here in Israel. And if you don't agree, we'll ban you. What? <laughs> do, do you not see how those don't mix? What are you saying? Are you serious? How do you not get that? Oh, my God. But that's what they do all the time. You know, they act like, you know, we're, we're the only nation in the Middle East that takes human rights seriously. And then in 2014, they did a, a bomb fest in Gaza, which killed 80% civilians including 500 children. 
So they love the self-congratulatory pats on the back about how they're so they're in a backwards region of the world. We're the only serious people who care about freedom and liberty and justice and human rights. And they go, you know, and prove the opposite in a thousand different ways. Now, um, what happened was after backlash, after pressure, um, they flipped on Rashida Tlaib and they said, okay, well, since your grandmother's in Palestinian, the Palestinian territories, we'll allow you to go visit your grandmother. But Rashida Tlaib came out and said they put weird and, and restrictive rules along with her going to visit her grandmother. She's like, I'm not going to go on your terms. No, I'm not going to do that. And then, of course, Donald Trump took to Twitter in response and said, Israel was being very nice and letting her go see your grandmother. And then she, was this a setup from the beginning? She said she doesn't want to go now. And it's like, oh, my God, you absolute children. Jesus Christ. There's a reason why they flip out when you have, you know, BDS take center stage. Because that's what this is about. You had Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. By the way, they didn't just flat out come out in favor of BDS. They just, like, said, hey, it's kind of not a crazy idea, given that this is how, you know, in South Africa they were able to finally end apartheid, and, and this is how we're fighting for human rights. So they didn't even, like, make declarative statements in favor of it. But even just, like, just like bumping elbows with the idea of BDS and the Israeli government flips out and bans them. Well... Why? Because they know that this is something that actually works. They know. They know. And we cover the story going back maybe two years now, three years now. Um, and there has been a giant reduction in businesses in the occupied territories. Why? Because BDS was impacting them. And they said, this is crazy. We're not, you know, we're struggling financially here. We should just move headquarters elsewhere. And then maybe we won't struggle financially. And also, they try to just say, oh, it's anti-Semitic. Um, meanwhile, I was just on the, the uh, BDS website last night. I was scrolling through and reading. There's multiple instances where they are condemning anti-Semitism, where they're talking about specific instances of bigotry against Jewish people, and they're condemning it in no uncertain terms. So every, it's just smear after smear after smear. They also try to make no distinction whatsoever between BDS of all of Israel versus BDS of the settlements. They act like, that's all bad, it's all wrong, it's all anti-Semitic. It's, it's all anti-Semitic. You hate all Jews because you want to bring about human rights for Palestinians. So um, it's, just, it's refreshing to have, first of all, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib in there, keeping it real, but then also Bernie Sanders doing the right thing and saying the right things. This idea of like, oh, really, you're just going to willy-nilly ban our congresspeople because you disagree with them fighting for, Pal for Palestinian human rights? And Bernie's like, okay, well, then how about if we don't give you your multi-billion dollar subsidy? How about that? How do you like them apples? That is awesome. And just so you know, Bernie Sanders is the only presidential candidate who says he's willing to use those subsidies as a bargaining chip. And he's willing to, to put conditions to our unending support of Israel. So that means this is a guy who sits across the table from Netanyahu and he says, listen, do you want the unending support of the United States? Well, there are strings attached. And here's what you're going to have to do in order to get it. And it starts with a peace process. It starts with no new settlement building. So it, it, it's a wonderful thing to see that you finally have some voices on the national scene that are willing to say things that are true. And, of course, the backlash is they're just 
you know, a bunch of shrieking idiots say, they're anti-Semites, and they don't provide any argument, they don't make any sense. Uh, it's just a way to try to shut down debate without actually engaging with the ideas. So in other words, the thing that the right wing accuses the left of doing all the time, they always call people bigots, and then they have no argument, and just to shut down debate, they call you bigots. That's exactly what they're doing to Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. Okay, next. I have an awesome, awesome, awesome video for you guys on this next one. So this next story made me laugh so hard. Oh, let me change the, the uh, graphic behind me. Yeah, let me start that over for you. Here we go. So this next story made me laugh so hard, you have no idea. Um, news broke the other night that Donald Trump spoke to his advisors and told them that he's interested in purchasing Greenland. Listen, it was so... That's such a far-fetched story, I almost didn't believe it at first. And I was like, come on, this can't be true. There's no way this is true. Well, come to find out, his advisors have verified it. They're like, yep, he did that. He did that. He was casually musing about purchasing Greenland. Now, let me go to the Guardian here. Here's what they said. Donald Trump has confirmed he is considering an attempt to buy Greenland for strategic reasons. Though he said the idea is not number one on the burner, Trump's interest uh, reported, uh, or excuse me, Trump's interest reported earlier this week was greeted internationally with widespread hilarity, but with indignation in Greenland and Denmark. The government of the semi-autonomous Danish territory insisted it was not for sale. The Danish prime minister called any discussion of a sale absurd. Nonetheless, on Sunday, White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow first confirmed the story in an interview before Trump uh, spoke to reporters as he left New Jersey to return from vacation to Washington, saying the concept came up and he was, quote, looking at it. (laughs) The man who runs a notoriously leaky White House also questioned how the idea found its way to the press. Trump sought to tie the idea of a U.S. purchase of the world's largest island, not including Australia, to his own area of professional expertise saying it would be essentially a large real estate deal. You cannot make this stuff up. If a comedian in, you know, a parody sketch show did this segment, did, did a joke about Trump wanting to buy Greenland, everybody would go, no, too far. That's, that's just too much. He wouldn't do something. I mean, even for Trump, that's insane. Not only did he do it, he was was just casually musing about it, as if it's not the most insane thing you've ever heard in your life. I like how he said, we're looking at it. (laughs) We're looking at it. We're looking at doing a deal with Greenland very strongly. We're very strongly looking at it. It would essentially be a large real estate deal, which I know I'm tremendous at. I'm unbelievable at, believe me. 
Oh, man. It's embarrassing. This is absolutely embarrassing. <laughs> I said it before. I feel bad about it from time to time, but the reality is, he's without even trying, he's one of the funniest people on the planet, Donald Trump. It makes me feel bad sometimes because he actually gives me some, some genuine belly laughs. Um, now, you would think that even for Trump's biggest sycophants, they'd know. All right, let's reel it in just a little bit here. Just a little bit. Don't follow Trump down that path of madness. You know, pump the brakes a little bit and let everybody know we still got our brains in our heads. But no. So there were multiple segments out there on Fox News of them entertaining this idea and taking it seriously. I have one for you here. Watch. And they were like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and we're laughing at you. 
And they're like, that sounds to me like the beginning of a serious negotiation. And we're going to see the art of the deal. You're embarrassing, man. You're embarrassing. And now I'm forced to bring up his real estate record also because you're making me bring it up. But this is a dude who he thinks he's like king businessman. He's, he's bankrupted six of his companies. He couldn't make a casino profitable where they basically just go and hand you money. His daddy had to bail him out and, and walk in there and buy millions of dollars in, in chips and then walk out. So his business record is abysmal, and they're pretending like his business record is glorious and wonderful. Again, don't take my word for it. You go and you read about Trump's business record on your own. But they're pretending like his business record is awesome and his art of the deal. We can see the art of the deal here. It'll be glorious. And Donald Trump is so glorious and right about everything. And the other thing I just can't get over, this is a side point, but... The, uh, the Daily Wire third stringer, who is that guy who you just heard talking right there, he's even, even when he talks, he sounds fake as fuck. He does the fake announcement. Well, actually, I think Donald Trump is doing a wonderful thing here by looking at this deal. And he, he has a way of making people um, pretend serious ideas are not serious simply when he pursues it. First of all, why are you talking like that? Second of all, You're defending him no matter what. You know, if he, if he said something, here, I'll give you a great example. You know when I gave Trump credit when he said we're done with TPP? You, you want to know why? Because I don't have a fucking cinder block where my brain is supposed to be. So, again, principles, policies, specifics. I'll come out here and I'll say when he does something decent, I'll say it. I don't care. I don't give a fuck. People, are there some maybe tiny sliver of my audience who will go, oh, I don't like that. How could you say that? Yeah, maybe, but I don't care. I'll tell the truth. Whereas you, you know, again, it's the defense squad. It's just go out there, act like, no, 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 there's nothing to see here. Everything's totally fine. Normal president musing about a normal thing. He's very strongly looking in a deal to buy Greenland. Unbelievable. And it's totally cool. It's totally normal. We'll see the art of the deal, maybe. This will be great. They said they don't want to do it and that this is absurd, but that seems like the beginning of a good negotiation. Imagine a press conference where Trump's out there and he's like, I just want everybody to know we've successfully begun negotiations to buy Greenland. What the fuck? These are the same people, for the record, who, don't, who hate the idea of Puerto Rico statehood. They hate Puerto Rico statehood, but you want to buy Greenland and make it part of the United States? What? Just total hack. Total hack. There's a reason why he's the Daily Wire third stringer. <laughs> they trot him out there in the most absurd situations and say, okay. Because they know, like, is Ben Shapiro going to go out there and defend this one? Well, he better, uh, you know, he better take his Adderall that day because his, his fast-talking shtick that makes him look smart, even though he's saying dumb things, he would need to talk, like, doubly as fast on this issue to make it seem like, you know, anywhere near the realm of something that makes sense. So he's like, hey, listen, dog, this one might be a little too far even for me. You go on Fox News and you try to tell them that buying Greenland is wonderful. Oh, my God. Just, just so everybody knows. If Bernie Sanders floated... 
something like that? Imagine Bernie came out there and he said we should try to buy Greenland. It would be the entire Republican Party, and it would be more than half the Democratic Party. No, it would be everybody. It would be literally everybody would be like, that's the most insane thing I've ever heard, and you probably have cognitive decline. Like, something's wrong with you. What are you talking about? Like, this, this alone disqualifies you from further running in the race for president. But Trump does it, and it's called Tuesday. It's just, you know, it's just another day. I can't wait to hear who he wants to buy next. We're going to hear about a potential deal with Botswana or something. Wait for it. Let's go to Bill Maher, who's just getting worse and worse and worse. So Bill Maher went after the Justice Democrats, completing his plunge into neoliberal shittiness. Take a look. It's a bullshit purity test. BDS is a bullshit purity test by people who want to appear woke but actually slept through history class. It's predicated on this notion, I think it's, it's very shallow thinking, that the Jews are in Israel mostly white and the Palestinians are browner, so they must be innocent and correct and the Jews must be wrong. As if, as if the occupation came right out of the blue, that this completely peaceful people found themselves occupied. Forget about the invitatas and the suicide bombing rockets. And, and the rockets and how many wars. And Let me read Omar Barghouti is one of the co-founders of the movement. His quote, no Palestinian, rational Palestinian, not a sellout Palestinian, will ever accept a Jewish state in Palestine. So that's where that comes from, this movement. Someone who doesn't even want a, Palest a Jewish state at all. Somehow this side never gets presented in the American media. It's very odd. Congresswoman Omar has said things like, um, it's all about the Benjamins. Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. She apologized for it, but it's out there. Jews control the world. Jews control the money. I can see why they don't get a hero's welcome. So he does the old tap dance of, is she anti-Semitic? I guess Ohan Omar's anti-Semitic. I guess she is. Look, she said e evil, you know, evil acts of Israel. That was literally during the 2014 massacre where Netanyahu's government cut the grass and killed 80% civilians in Gaza, including 500 children. Are you not allowed to call that evil? I'd call that evil. I call it evil when the U.S. kills innocent civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm not allowed to call it evil when Israel does it because something, something, anti-Semitism? That's what that was in reference to. Bill, all about the Benjamins was in specific reference to AIPAC buying politicians to do the bidding of Israel. 
That's what we call factual. That's what we call something that actually happens, which is terrible for our country, which is supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. And before you say, oh, she singled out Israel, utter nonsense. She has also called out the Saudi lobby. But you've never called her Islamophobic. Somehow when she calls out Saudi Arabia, it's totally fine. And by the way, you pretend like she doesn't do it, even though she has done it. When she calls out the influence of Saudi lobbying and Saudi money, oh, that's totally fine. But when she calls out the Israeli lobby and Israeli money, anti-Semite! Do you understand how stupid you sound? I mean, he's just feeding into the same nonsense D.C. sleazebag smears that were pervasive all over the place. They were equally bullshit then as they are now. And he's acting like, I can see why they're not getting a hero's welcome. Wait a second, Bill. You're like Mr. Free Speech. You, you always talk about how free speech is an important issue. So you're telling me you believe in free speech unless U.S. Congress people criticize a foreign government, and then you're totally on board with that foreign government banning them from entering the country because they hurt somebody's feelings? Because Netanyahu and the Israeli government are snowflakes and they need a safe space? So now you support that. That's totally fine. Ban them because you don't like their political opinions. I thought you were the free speech guy. I thought you were the free expression guy. Unbelievable how quickly they flip. Uh, man, he, ha- he really has gotten worse and worse and worse. Now, let's get a little bit more specific here. Obviously, those were smears against Ilhan Omar, saying she's an anti-Semite. That's utter nonsense, or at least implying she was an anti-Semite. He's called BDS a bullshit purity test. And then he goes on to say... Well, you know, we know what this idea comes from. It's because Jews are white and the Palestinians are brown. So they think, well, obviously, the, the white people have to be the bad people. I've been running in lefty circles for a long time. You know how many lefties I've heard say the reason we're against Israel is because they have white skin and the reason we're for Palestinians is because they have brown skin? That's how many. Zero. Donut. Nada. Nothing. Nobody. Ever, ever, ever. Nobody has ever said that ever in the history of advocacy for Palestinian human rights. Nobody has ever said the reason we're doing this is because we think the Jews are white, therefore they must be evil, and the Palestinians are brown, therefore they must be wonderful. Nobody's ever said that ever, ever. And you know that. You know that, Bill. But you have no real argument, so you have to straw man your opponent. If you listen to what they say, and by the way, you could easily do that if you wanted to, you'd find out the whole point is they want Palestinian human rights because they're under permanent occupation right now. Now, by the way, there are plenty of people who support BDS who support a one-state solution. There are plenty of people who support BDS who support a two-state solution. There's also different kinds of BDS. There's BDS of all of Israel, and there's also BDS of the settlement. Notice, there's no nuance, there's no distinction, there's no conversation, because Bill Maher's whole point is to just smear all of them. The whole idea is, you're supposed to think any conversation that's talking against the Israeli occupation is somehow anti-Semitic and you shouldn't have that conversation. And it is just totally dishonest and disgusting and disingenuous. And again, these are the same people who say, Bro, I'm all about conversation, bro! Let's have the conversation. I'm all about the marketplace of ideas. Unless you bring up an idea I don't like, in which case I'll smear smear you and pretend you have no point at all and say we can't even engage in that conversation because it's anti-Semitic or some bullshit. On the BDS website, you scroll down, not even that far down, they're condemning anti-Semitism. They're bringing up specific examples, specific cases, specific groups of uh, anti-Semitism, and they condemn it in no uncertain terms. They're a group that's flat out against anti-Semitism. Again, the whole point is to bring about Palestinian human rights. And there, there's disagreement within the BDS movement on, hey, what's the ultimate goal here? One state solution, two state solution. What everybody agrees on is Palestinians deserve human rights. 
I mean, it, it's really disgusting and it's really disingenuous uh, uh, the way that he talks about this issue. And also, I like how he said uh, he called the intifadas infitadas. <laughs> I mean, listen, we can give him a pass on that because he just slipped up. But still, it's just kind of funny that in this midst, in the midst of this like self-righteous smug-ass rant where he's, like, looking down on everybody for, you don't know what you're talking about. He's like, the infatadas. Come on, dude. Come on, man. So, listen. Bottom line is, he doesn't want you to talk about this issue at all. And if you do, he'll accuse you of being an anti-Semite. You're not allowed to talk about um, apartheid. You're not allowed to talk about endless occupation. Um, And by the way, the main response to, to Bill Maher, and the important, most important response is, do you not realize that this movement is exactly analogous to the movement to end apartheid in South Africa, and that what he's doing effectively and historically is gaslighting on the side of the racist South African government? Like, do you not understand that that's the that's analogous in history, is you're saying like, oh yeah, the right-wing government of Israel, which is permanently occupying and expanding and treating Palestinians in a horrendous way, I'm going to gaslight to defend them, and what, you think this is going to reflect well on you in the future? There's a reason why every other developed country, the U.S. is the only one that doesn't do it, but every other developed country, is like, yeah, Israel's violating international law and they need to stop doing it. And it's not because all the other um, countries are somehow closet anti-Semites. It's got a lot more to do with the fact that Israel is violating international law. But he acts like that entire conversation is illegitimate. And he acts like it's some sort of like fake woke brigade that's, you know, against uh, Israel simply because they have white skin and pro-Palestinian simply because they have brown skin. So he has to totally obfuscate, conflate the issue, sidestep, dodge, straw man, in order to even make a semblance of a nonsense case. And of course, he ends up doing the same thing that he whines against college kids for all the time, which is false accusations of bigotry because he has no point. Okay. All right, let's uh let's do the Lindsey Graham story then we'll take a a quick break. So US officials are in talks to draw down in Afghanistan. Now, unfortunately, in my opinion, there are terms and conditions. I wish there were no terms and conditions. I wish it was just, yeah, we shouldn't be there. We've already been there for uh, 18 years. Uh, We have nothing to show for it. In fact, the situation on the ground is worse than it was when we went there. So, yeah, let's just get out. Let's just get out. That's what I would do. But, you know, the Trump administration, or I should say some people in the Trump administration behind the scenes doing the negotiation – um, they, they have terms and conditions that they'd like to uh, be met before we get out. So Washington Post reported this week that an initial drawdown would include 
um, roughly 5,000 of the 14,000 U.S. troops that are still there. So again, this is where I say he's just Trump's just doing an Obama move here, yo-yoing the troop levels up, down, up, down, up, down, and then pretending like, oh, pat me on the back, I'm an anti-war person. No, you're not. You just yo-yoed the troop levels, but we're still there. That's not anti-war, not by any stretch of the imagination. But um, in exchange for this drawdown of troops, the idea is the Taliban would agree to renounce Al Qaeda, prevent Al Qaeda from fundraising in their territory, recruiting in their territory. Um, training and doing any operational planning in in their territory. Uh, So there's like a trade-off here of, hey, we'll draw down. You get to keep whatever territory you have, but here are the terms and conditions of how you must govern your territory. You have to provide no safe uh, harbor for al-Qaeda. Okay, that's the idea. So naturally, the neocon ghouls are out in full force, and they're saying, oh, my God, how dare you? How could you? Um, we obviously have to stay in Afghanistan from now until the end of time, and um, they're trying to make their case and beg President Donald Trump to agree to do that. So Lindsey Graham on Twitter said the following, American soldiers in Afghanistan are not acting as policemen. They are the front-line defense for America against the emergence of radical Islamist groups who wish to attack the American homeland. To trust the Taliban to control al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other radical Islamist groups President in Afghanistan as a replacement for a U.S. counterterrorism force would be a bigger mistake than Obama's Iranian nuclear deal. Any peace agreement which denies the U.S. robust counterterrorism capability in Afghanistan is not a peace deal. Instead, it is paving the way for another attack on the American homeland and attacks against American interests around the world. Any agreement which denies the U.S. the ability to have a meaningful counterterrorism force capability based on conditions on the ground for as long as needed, is a recipe for disaster. I hope the president and his team make sound and sustainable decisions about radical Islamist threats emanating from Afghanistan, the place where 9-11 originated. That would be Saudi Arabia. Mr. President, learn from President Obama's mistakes. A bad agreement puts the radical Islamist movement all over the world on steroids. Be smart, take your time, and listen to your national security team. Look forward to having congressional hearings and reviewing, debating, and voting on any proposed peace agreement with the Taliban that affects America's future presence in Afghanistan. It's very important that any agreement be fully vetted and understood by Congress and the American people. So do you understand that last part there? Because that's the most important part. What Lindsey Graham is saying is, oh, you think you're going to get out of Afghanistan? That's adorable. I'm going to demand that Congress has an up or down vote on the plan in Afghanistan. And then I'm also by extension demanding that we kill this deal. Why? Well, the Democrats are, you know, their whole thing is front and center, just be anti-Trump no matter what. We're against Trump, we're against Trump, we're against Trump. So Trump coming up with some sort of a deal to get out of Afghanistan, or at least draw down in Afghanistan, the Democrats are going to step up and go, well, I'm against Trump, and I think that's a bad idea, and oh my God, Donnie wants to do a deal with the Taliban. Donnie's a Taliban sympathizer. So the Democrats will politicize and act like, "Ah, this is crazy, bro. Getting out of Afghanistan is a crazy idea, bro. And then the Republicans are more pro-war than they are pro-Trump. You understand that? That's super important. Their allegiance allegiance lies more with the military-industrial complex than it does with the Trump-industrial complex. So even though there are sycophants in many respects, there are some issues where they will break ranks with him. And one of those issues is if he ever manages to do anything good ever, like being against TPP, or in this instance, saying, hey, maybe we start drawing down in Iraq. So what Lindsey Graham is doing is he's saying, listen, listen, listen. 
we know that you're the commander-in-chief and you can make these decisions, and in fact you were elected to make these decisions. We know that's what you are, but we weren't demanding any accountability or any up, on, up, up or down vote on anything involving Afghanistan since we said let's go in in 2001. What we are going to do is we're going to gaslight you and say if you want to get out, you need a congressional vote. You need a congressional vote. You need, you need a vote in Congress. You need a vote in the Senate. What do you mean? That's, I mean, that we're doing our job. So look at this. Congress has abdicated their responsibility to do an up or down vote when the president wants to go to war. Look at Syria. We have troops in Syria right now. Was there an up or down vote in Congress? Nope. They all said, you want me to vote on that? I don't know why I don't vote on that, bro. You want me to vote on that? responsibility whenever they need to vote on whether or not we go to war and they look the other way as the president says let's go to war but then when it comes to getting out they're like ah, ah we need an up or down vote we're going to vote no because we want you to stay in afghanistan forever this is this isn't congress this is the military industrial complex little minions that's what this is and lindsey graham is the worst example of that now also he's like ah, another 9-11 another 9-11 saudi arabia one of our top allies they were the haven for the 9-11 terrorists Okay, that ideology emanates from Saudi Arabia, the Salafist Wahhabi terrorist ideology. Saudi Arabia are the ones that have funded radical mosques around the world, teaching the fundamentalist interpretation of Sunni Islam, which inspires these terrorists. Does he say anything about that? No, because he likes Saudi Arabia, because they're our ally. So he talks about Afghanistan endlessly. We know, as a matter of fact, that the United States and Saudi Arabia, have funded jihadist terrorists on the ground in Syria and on the ground in Yemen. Sunni extremist militias. We are funding them, we are arming them, we are backing them. He's crying these crocodile tears about, oh, if we leave Afghanistan, another night, what happens now? I need security. You want security? There's a very simple way to achieve it. Stop funding terrorists. By the way, Tulsi Gabbard literally has a Stop Arming Terrorists Act, for which she was roundly mocked, as if she's not like 100% accurate as to the fact that we are doing that. So if, you, if Lindsey Graham was super concerned about, oh, no, the 9-11, we must prevent it, the first thing he would do is say, okay, we got to stop our financial backing of Saudi Arabia. we got to stop our financial backing of moderate rebels on the ground in Syria who have beheaded children and are jihadists. we got to stop our arming and funding of the Sunni extremist militias in Yemen. That's what we want. If we were really serious about this, that's what we would do. But no, he doesn't say anything about that. Why? Because he's not, he doesn't actually care about that. He's using that as a cover to say, let's permanently stay in Afghanistan because he's a military industrial complex, little minion. You understand? So this dude takes more money from the military industrial complex maybe than any other senator. He's certainly in the top five. And he knows who butters his bread. And so he's going to fight for them come hell or high water. He believes in the U.S. role as being the sole empire, the sole superpower. And he says we're not acting like the policemen. Of course we are. We're acting like the policemen. And also, we're jacking natural resources as well. Trillions of dollars of mineral wealth in Afghanistan. And I'm sure that that weighs into the decision-making as they gaslight you and pretend like it's all about protecting us from another 9-11. Utter nonsense. Guys, we've been there 18 years. Did you know that today the Taliban controls more territory than they did when we invaded did you know that? 
By the way, did you also know that the original idea, they said when we went into Afghanistan, we got to get Osama bin Laden. Dude's been dead for a really long time now. Why didn't you wrap it up the second he died and said, oh, we're going to go home now? He wasn't even found in Afghanistan. He was in Pakistan. But that was the original reason they gave. We've got to get al-Qaeda. We've got to get Osama. We've got to get him. We've got to get him. And he's been dead for so long, and then they're just like, is, is, everybody, is anybody paying attention? No? Okay. Well, let's pretend like there's still a totally legitimate reason for us to be there. This is gross, man. They moved the goalposts until they didn't even bother moving the goalposts anymore, and they just acted like, well, what do you mean? We're just supposed to permanently be everywhere we are. Look at Saddam Hussein with Iraq. They were like, oh, he did 9-11. He worked with Osama bin Laden. Then we learned that was bullshit. Then they moved the goalposts to, ah, yeah. I mean, but he's got weapons of mass destruction. He's got weapons of mass destruction. He's going to use them on us, obviously, right? And then we found out that wasn't true. And then they moved the goalposts. Well, I mean, he's a bad dictator, bro. He's a bad, what, are you pro-bad dictators? I guess you're in favor of dictators. Why are you a dictator level? Why are you against us going to war, bro? He's a bad dictator. He does human rights violations. Are you in favor of human rights violations, bro? What kind of a monster are you? And then finally, they just moved the goalposts to, yeah, I know we destroyed the region and ISIS was created out of that vacuum and that we broke the Middle East and made everything worse. But, but, I mean, but now we can't leave because if we leave, then it'll get worse or something. Oh, my God. Oh, God. All while wasting trillions of dollars, seven trillion in Iraq, two trillion in Afghanistan, have absolutely nothing to show for it, made the situation worse, made terrorism increase. And uh, we also have here at home, Flint, Michigan doesn't have clean water. Infrastructure gets a grade of D+. Everything's crumbling to the ground. We're a total mess. And Lindsey Graham is still gaslighting in favor of endless war. As Donald Trump tries a watered-down plan, which is way worse than what he originally campaigned on, and say, oh, let's get out of the Middle East. Now he's like, well, what if I took out less than half of the troops we have in Afghanistan? Oh, God. It never ends, man. It never ends. Okay. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, got some juicy information about Biden's presidential run that you're going to want to hear. And then um, the ancient dusty goblin Rush Limbaugh went after Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. And he's not even trying anymore, man. He seriously just phoned it in. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
speech. Oh. All right, welcome back to the show, bitches. What do we got here? We got some some chips. I like how I just eat every show now, to one extent or another. Mmm. Mmm. Yummy. I don't know if you can hear the chomping, but it is going on. Very good. Cheddar and sour cream. In my opinion, a wonderful mix. Probably in my top chip choices. Cheddar and sour cream is off the charts delicious. Okay. Um, You're going to get a kick out of this next story. It's pretty juicy if I don't say so myself. Let me set this up. So here's some pretty juicy information about Biden's presidential run that you're going to want to hear. President Barack Obama reportedly cautioned Joe Biden on his presidential run just before he declared his candidacy, according to a New York Times report. Quote, you don't have to do this, Joe. You really don't. Obama told Biden earlier this year, according to a source at the Times. The two had spoken at least half a dozen times before Biden ultimately decided to run. Quote, Obama took pains to cast his doubts about the campaign in personal terms, according to the Times article. In 2016, Obama quietly pressured Biden to sit out the race, partly because he thought Hillary Clinton had a better chance of building on his agenda, and partly because he did not think Biden was emotionally equipped to handle the race just after the 2015 death of his son, Beau Biden. Biden believed he could have beat President Donald Trump four years ago and told Obama he could never forgive himself if he turned down another shot at Trump. (laughs) Oh, my God. So they go on to say that in Obama's March meeting with uh, Biden's campaign advisors, he said, quote, win or lose, they needed to make sure Mr. Biden did not embarrass himself or damage his legacy during the campaign, inside sources said. I'm a little unclear here. Does that mean, hey man, Joe needs to not embarrass himself and damage my legacy, me being Obama, or does he mean Joe needs to not embarrass himself or damage his own legacy? I don't know what that means, but either way, it shows this is all this this is all occurring to Obama. See, Obama, despite all of his flaws. He's a good politician. Like, he's, he knows, like, he could see from a mile away what's happening with Biden right now with all of his ga- gaps and his cognitive decline and his, like, terrible strategy. Obama's looking at that going, oh, my God. But one of Biden's only tricks at this point is to say, but Obama likes me. Like, that's all he's got. He'll get cornered on something, like his terrible record when it comes to Um, civil rights, for example, and how he opposed busing desegregation at one point. And I'll just be like, well, but Obama vetted me, and he said I was good. And there's no doubt Obama's watching this at home going, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, what have I done? (laughs) 
shut up, Joe, shut up, shut up, shut up. So it's interesting that this is the case. Now, the other interesting part of this is, the whole thing is interesting, but why do you think this story was released? Let me explain something to you about politics. This didn't just fall out of the fucking sky. Like, whenever you see a story, the wheels were turning behind the scenes, and there, there was a movement to make that story actually get released. So for this one, you have a story about the former president of the United States warning the guy who's running, who's technically the front runner, warning about this guy going, hey man, listen, don't, I don't think you want to do this. This might not be a good idea. Why is that story being released now? Answer. Barack Obama is now absolutely convinced that Joe Biden will not be the nominee. And he is trying to protect his legacy. He's trying to say, who, bro, me? No, I was warning all along. I was like, Joe, I don't know about all this, dog. I don't know. You don't want to ruin your legacy. You don't want to embarrass yourself. Not sure this is the right time for you to do something like this. So, me? Bro, I was saying all along I was saying this, man. I was saying this all along. Y'all don't, don't... don't, don't take down my legacy because of this dude fucking everything up. That's, that's what's going on. The Obama team reached out to the New York Times, gave him a couple quotes, you know, and, and let this story drop just to let everybody know, like, it's a wink and a nod that Barack Obama knows Joe Biden will not be the nominee. And, hey, man, even though he's not the nominee, don't, like, don't take that out on me. Like, just, I'm separate from him. Like, that's the idea here. 100% that's the idea. It's got to be, it's hilarious that, you know, Biden, Biden has said repeatedly, like, I told, I told Barack, I don't even want your endorsement. The former president of the United States, you were the vice president. He's polling at 60% right now. And you don't want his endorsement? My ass cheeks. Obama told you, Joe, if you run, I'm not going to give you my endorsement. I'm going to stay out of it. And now he's, Biden was trying to spin it like, <laughs> I don't want your endorsement, bro. What are you guys talking about, bro? I don't want your endorsement. I don't want that, bro. I don't want that, bro. I don't want that, bro. The other, there, some tidbits in this are beyond fascinating. The fact that Apparently, in 2016, Obama thought, hey, Hillary Clinton has a better chance of building on his agenda than Biden does. So Obama, at least at some point, thought, like, oh, she, she might be better. She might have a better chance of winning the presidency against Donald Trump. She might have a better chance of winning an election. Obama thought that at one point. Now, later on, he flipped. Because there have been countless quotes about how he said she ran a soulless campaign and, you know, nobody told her to use a private email server, all that stuff. But um, it's interesting that at one point he thought Hillary had a better chance than Biden of winning an election. Um, and that's funny because me, I've actually, I'm on the record as saying the opposite. I thought Biden has a better chance of winning an election than Hillary does. Um, but now I was also, so Obama was wrong, but I was also wrong when I said the opposite because the reality is, I think Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden have, it's the same. I think they're basically the same. 
one's female, one's male, but they're fundamentally the same in terms of their policies and also in terms of their strategy. Biden is proudly running on the strategy of, I'm not Bernie Sanders. All right, well, good luck with that because he's captured the heart and soul of this party. Whether or not you acknowledge it, whether or not you realize it, totally irrelevant. He's the one with the movement. So uh, just unbelievably fascinating. And I'm telling you, that is why this story is dropped now. This is Barack Obama saying, I warned him, man. I warned him. And, and he knows that there, he is, quote, embarrassing himself, Joe Biden is, and he is, quote, damaging his legacy during the campaign. He could have sailed off into the sunset, Joe Biden. And by the way, if he did that, there would have been a mythology that went along with him. And that mythology would have been, yeah, yeah, Uncle Joe, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, he's all right, all right guy. You know, vice president under Barack Obama, some thought, including myself, in some ways he pushed Biden, uh, Obama to the left on some issues. So we could have just went off into the sunset with this idea in people's minds that was a myth, but the idea of, oh, he's, pretty, he's kind of better than a regular corporate Democrat, Joe Biden is. But he just had, his ego just had to force him back out there. And this idea of, like, I couldn't let myself, I couldn't forgive myself if I didn't get another crack at Trump. As if this guy is the guy who's going to ride in on, on the white horse and save us, as opposed to what he actually is, which is the, the opposite, which is, oh, my God, dude, if it's Joe Biden, we're fucked, Bill. Because Trump can definitely handle Joe Biden. Trump, what are you going to do? Sir him to death? Now, sir, this is not who we are. Come on. That's, all, that's the Biden's whole campaign. This is not who we are. Come on. That's his whole campaign. His launch video was, Nazis are bad. Well, thanks, Joe. But that's the lowest bar I've ever fucking heard in my entire life by far. (laughs) Nazis are bad. Yeah, got it. (laughs) That's That's like day one, minute one of reality. Nazis are bad. What a low bar. I want you to know that I, for one, am against genocide. Oh, brave. Brave. Now, what are your thoughts on Medicare for All? Hate it. (laughs) Uh, uh. Obama knows it ain't going to be Biden. make fun of Rush Limbaugh. So the ancient dusty goblin Rush Limbaugh took some time to go after Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and defend Israel. Uh, This is hilariously bad because it's like he's not even trying anymore. Uh, And it's it's just become a mess only because there are people who think that enemies of Israel should be allowed into Israel to cause trouble for Israel. And those would be people in the Democrat Party, which is now the new home in America of anti-Semitism, and the drive-by media. These two women, anti-Semitism and hatred for Jews is in their lifeblood. It's why they wanted to be elected 
that and many other reasons. These women have been raised as anti-Semites. Well, this is, and I don't even have to know them to know this. All I have to know is Sharia Islam. All you have to know is Sharia Islam. Pretty sure you just clued everybody in that you don't know. <laughs> All I have to know is Sharia Islam. Oh, man. Dude, they are not even trying anymore. They have their little segment of the population. They're preaching to the choir all day long. And so they say stuff like this, and they think it's, they're not exposing themselves to be total idiots. Okay. I thought it was the far right who said time and time again, the left always does false cries of bigotry when they have no argument at all. They just want to shut down the conversation by calling everybody racists and bigots. And then they do exactly that to the left. 100% complete and utter projection. Because you heard it right there, Rush Limbaugh said, they're anti-Semites. He literally said, oh, I don't even need to know them to know that they're anti-Semites. Wait, what? You don't even need to know them. So how can you possibly make that, uh, you know, conclusion? How could you come to that conclusion? How can you make that assertion? He goes, what? it's in their lifeblood. In their lifeblood? What does that even mean? They were raised that way. In other words, they're brown. They're brown. They're Middle Eastern, I think. So whatever. They hate Jews. So hilariously and ironically, as he's accusing them of bigotry, he's making a bigoted argument. Because he's like, they're raised that way. You know how they are. It's in their lifeblood. I don't even need to know them to know. I mean, just look at them. God, he's so stupid. Oh, stupid. I just need to know Sharia Islam. <laughs> Sharia Islam. Listen, not that we need to go through it, but we're going to go through it. Ilhan Omar um, talking about how it's all about the Benjamins was in reference to AIPAC. AIPAC is the Israeli lobby. The whole point of the Israeli lobby is to buy politicians to do the bidding of Israel in the same way that it's the bidding of the Saudi lobby to buy politicians do the bidding of Saudi Arabia. This isn't a conspiracy. This isn't controversial. This is called how Washington, D.C. functions. But for some reason, when she calls it out, when it comes to Israel, all of a sudden she's an anti-Semite. She's not Islamophobe for calling it out for Saudi Arabia, but she is an anti-Semite for calling it out for Israel. Um, it is incredibly disingenuous. It's incredibly stupid. And it's just not true that it's anti-Semitic. And if you think it is, sincerely, you're a fool. But chances are they know it's not, but they're just lying and smearing. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, these guys love to say that they're in favor of small government and they're in favor of freedom. And then uh, what does he say? Well, enemies of Israel shouldn't be allowed into Israel. That's a very large government when you're micromanaging the opinions of people who come into your country. And also it is quite literally anti-freedom to say, you disagree with the official government position, so now we're not going to allow you in the country. I thought you also loved free speech, Rush. The whole idea of free speech is even if I disagree with what you're saying massively, it is your right to say it, and there shouldn't be punitive actions from the state against you for, for saying it. And then he calls for punitive actions from the state. Don't allow them into Israel. By the way, they were going to do a tour and go to some Palestinian territories. 
and show you what life is like there for those people. Ilhan Omar did a long tweet thread on it. So it's damage control type stuff from the Israeli government. Oh, my God, we can't have the world seeing how bad it is. So Rush Limbaugh is working backwards from his conclusion. He hates Democrats. He hates these congresswomen. He loves Israel. And so he doesn't care. Throw mud against the wall and hope some of it sticks. And so here we are. We're at the point where, as they accuse the left of false cries of bigotry, they do false cries of bigotry all day long. And we're at the point where he says goofy shit like, it's in their lifeblood. They were raised that way. I don't even know them to know that they're anti-Semites. And uh, I, Rush Limbaugh, am an expert on Sharia Islam. Okay. For this next story, I have to pull up a tweet for everybody. Let me pull up this tweet, bitch. Let me pull up this tweet, bitch. Okay, here we go. So Politico has some pretty facepalm-worthy news for us. You really couldn't make this up if you tried. Mark Halperin is a guy who was uh, hashtag MeTooed not too long ago. Um, I don't know all the specific accusations against him. I know one of them was he would get hard and then push his erect penis up against women that he worked with, and this was all, you know, they weren't consenting. You know, a lot of the uh, Me Too allegations, I feel like many of them can fall into gray areas of like, oh, it was a bad attempt at flirtation or whatever. For him, it doesn't seem like that at all. For him, it seems to go way above and beyond and to clear harassment. So, you know, whenever we have those conversations about uh, the Me Too stuff, I would just caution that you should go on a case-by-case basis and see, hey, does this make sense? Does this not make sense? In the case of Mark Halpern, what I know about the Mark Halpern case, and I don't know all the specifics because I don't want to learn about this guy's fucking awkward, gross sexual things. Um, what I know is it wasn't just like a you know, little thingy here and there. It was <laughs> little thingy, perhaps not the proper time to say that in the context of this story. Um, it, was, uh, it was quite a significant issue. But um, So this guy is trying to make a comeback into politics. He was as with a lot of these people, he was kind of like pushed to the side a while ago. There's a fly in here, and that's pretty annoying, um, especially because it might go across the camera and fuck up the focus. But anyway, I digress. Um, he's trying to get back into politics, and he knows the way to do that is, well, I've got to like tiptoe back in. I can't just you know dive right in the deep end and just have my face on TV or whatever. So he's done like a serious XM radio interview here and there. I think he was with uh, Michael Smirkanish, who's the most boring person on the planet. Um, and then... The other thing is, I'll do a book. I'll do a book. So what are they going to do? It's just writing on a page. You don't have to see me. So I'm tiptoeing my way back. Tiptoe, tiptoe, tiptoe. Um, so now let me give you the specifics on this. This is from Politico. Mark Halpern has signed a deal with Regan Arts to publish a book called How to Beat Trump, America's Top Political Strategist on What It Will Take. The publisher will announce Monday. The book is Halpern's first major project since multiple accusations about him were published in the height of the Me Too movement in October 2017. The book will be released in November of this year. 
Halperin interviewed more than 75 top Democratic strategists for the book, including Jill Alper, David Axelrod, Bob Bauer, Donna Brazil, James Carville, Tad Devine, Anita Dunn, Karen Dunn, uh, Adrian Elrod, Jennifer Granholm, Ben LaBolt, uh, Jeff Link, Jim Margolis, Mike McCurry, Mark Melman, uh, Amanda Renteria, John Sasso, Kathleen Sebelius, Bob Schrum, uh, Ginny Terzano, and David Wilhelm. Okay. He knows the way to get back in is to play on that anti-Trump sentiment. Hey, you guys want a Trump bad? You want to do a book on that? Trump bad. Trump bad. And they're like, Trump bad, bro. I'm in. But the most infuriating part of this, all of these people who he interviewed on how to beat Trump are the people who lost to Donald Trump. Like I said, you can't make this stuff up if you tried. I'm not sure there's any other profession where there's less accountability than when it comes to political strategists in Washington, D.C. The exact same people who botched it and lost to a reality star buffoon are the same people who are like, Step aside, bro. We're the strategists. We're the experts. The only thing they'd be qualified to talk about is how to lose to Donald Trump. You would honestly be better off taking all of their advice and doing the exact opposite. The exact opposite. These people are so bad that they couldn't be the most beatable candidate in U.S. political history. Now, this next tweet I'm going to show you is related to this. Uh, Take a look at what Sam Stein is saying is in the mind of Democratic strategists today. Democrats are privately pushing polling, showing that going after Trump's Twitter addiction and accusing him of being ineffective because of it may be the party's most effective message. I oftentimes joke on this show, and it's partly serious, partly joking, of this caricature of goofballs who are like, you know, I I agree with Trump on policy, but man, do I not like his mean tweets. I'm against them because of he's so impolite and uncivil on Twitter. The Democrats want to make that a centerpiece of their strategy moving forward against Trump. They literally want to move to, he's on Twitter all the time and that's bad bad that he's on Twitter. And notice the wording. He's ineffective as a leader because he's on Twitter. Ineffective. Ineffective. Not fundamentally wrong about the agenda he's pushing. Ineffective. That means you don't necessarily disagree with him on on the fundamentals of what he's doing. You just think he's not good at implementing it properly. Oh my God. They're hopeless. They're goddamn hopeless. Are you kidding me? If I were to craft a strategy that's the worst possible strategy for Democrats, this would be it. He's he's on Twitter a lot. He's impolite there and he's bad. You think people don't, people knew that before he got elected the first time. All he did was tweet day in, day out, insane stuff. It turns out that wasn't a deal breaker for people. How do they not get this? Oh my God. Oh, 
strategy, but this is the opposite of the strategy that you should do. And these are the people who are weighing in on how to beat Trump. By the way, this is why they're shoving Biden down your throat. This is why they're shoving Kamala down your throat. That's the ideology. That's the, the last gasps of neoliberal centrism. That's what that is. Biden is just repping it. Kamala's trying to cover it up a little bit and act like, I'm kind of like Bernie. But that, those are the last gasps of neoliberal centrism. Man, you, you couldn't craft a situation that was worse for this country. Donald Trump and a Republican Party that are crusaders for their agenda and on message 24-7, and a Democratic Party run by the same strategist that lost to Trump that still think they're serious people and you should listen to what they have to say. And the Democrats are still listening to them to the point where they're stuck on Trump's Twitter bad as a strategy. So they're not bringing up the uh, tax cuts for the rich and the tax cuts for corporations that screw regular people, raise the taxes for everybody making $75,000 a year or less over a 10-year period. They're not talking about the Wall Street deregulation and the coming market crash. It's on the way. Believe me, it's definitely on the way. They're not talking about half of workers in America making $30,000 a year or less or 76% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck or our D-plus uh, infrastructure, which needs a total top-down rebuild. They're not talking about the fact that this party is totally bought and owned by the uh, oil interest and fossil fuel interests, so they're pushing us further down the road of climate change to the point of no return. They're not talking about the bombing of eight different countries, including you know, staying in Iraq only withdrawing not even half the troops in Afghanistan when we should be getting out of Afghanistan. They're not talking about the push to do regime change in Iran, the push to do regime change in Venezuela, and resisting on that front, as this guy being the unhinged maniac that he is. They're not talking about the new Cold War and the ripping up of the, the, um, the weapons agreement that we had with Russia. They're not talking about any of that stuff. Trump's Twitter is bad. They're grifters, and they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. But since they're in elite circles, they think they're serious. The fact of the matter is, you're much more likely to get serious, substantive conversation about politics on YouTube. On YouTube. It's embarrassing. Candace Owens. Here we go. So Candace Owens was at an event recently, and she was asked about um, debating me. And it turns out that in many ways, she's acting like the new Ann Coulter. Everybody remembers what happened with Ann Coulter uh, at last year's Politicon. So let's take a look, and then we'll discuss. Also, I was wondering, Candice, why you didn't debate Kyle Kalinske from the Secular Talk. What he says is that he was in um, coordination with people at Politicon, and 
They actually said that you weren't ready for debates. Okay, so this is one of the weirdest internet rumors I ever heard about myself. I didn't attend Politicon. I didn't attend Politicon because I was in my sister's wedding. So I, I don't know why someone thought I was debating someone in California when I had a wedding in Connecticut, uh, but I, I never, it's just an internet myth. Will you do it next year? I don't really, is he, who's, who's Kyle Kalinske? Yeah, it's kind of like punching down for Candace, to be honest, so. <laughs> I'd like to debate AOC. I respectfully disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a Democrat candidate. I'm not, I'm not, we're not. I talked to Kylie's and I talked to him on stage. We debated. It was fine. It was fun. It's kind of like Candace says, trolling yeah. a little bit. So, yeah. Go back and listen again. Listen to the crowd reaction when they say, uh, it's like punching down for Candace. Listen to that crowd reaction. Now, I don't know. There are, I guess they're at a, a Turning Point uh, USA, Talking Point, Turning Point, whatever they call their group uh, event. And the audience, they're, uh, this is their own audience. And they're like, huh. <laughs> and the guy asking the question was like, um, yeah, I respectfully disagree with that. So here's the thing. Candace Owens is a, a political commentator, a new, a new media political commentator, a young political commentator. I am a, a political commentator, a new media political commentator, a young political commentator. She, I think she's younger than me, but... Um, She's saying, oh, I want to debate uh, like a, a candidate, a politician for office. Politicians debate other politicians. And, you know, then they go and do their jobs and, and legislate. So it makes, more, it makes sense to her for a media figure, a political commentator, to debate a politician. But it doesn't make sense for a media figure to debate another media figure. A political commentator to debate another political commentator. Okay, I don't know what world that makes sense in, but obviously it makes sense in her own mind. She also says, well, I'll debate AOC. Hey, Candace, who co-founded the group that got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez elected? Hmm. Who co-founded the group that also got Ilhan Omar elected and Rashida Tlaib elected and Ayanna Presley elected? Who co-founded that group? I'll wait for you to give the answer on that. Now, of course, she doesn't know the answer on that because, hilariously, even though she fancies herself some sort of political expert who knows what's going on in the world of politics, she doesn't know the most basic things about politics. Um, yeah, there's not much else to say about that other than if you debate the person who I helped get elected, it's a little silly not to debate me. Now, she's, she's convinced that I'm some sort of nefarious liar, and she's some sort of victim. Um, we, had a, we had a back and forth on Twitter probably about three weeks ago now, and um, in every single tweet response, she was like, allegations, liar, 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 liar. No, I 100% was told by Politicon that your team told them she isn't quite ready for that yet, referring to a debate. In fact, listen, I don't know if I, I should do this. I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I know as a matter of fact I'm not lying, but the person who told me that is, was, I believe, the head of Politicon at the time who was in charge of talking to all the talent, and her name is uh, Jewel Rose. There. I, I, I put her name out there just so everybody knows. Now, I also had released my text conversation with 
uh, with her where I laid out clearly, hey, here are the people that I'm willing to debate. And in that list was Candace Owens. And they were um, floating the idea. They had thrown a lot of ideas out there, including, hey, me and David Pakman versus Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk in some sort of a double debate or, or double panel discussion or whatever. But I was so clear. I even went on to say, I'll do Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk versus me. I'll do two versus one. Okay? So I had the receipts on that. When they told me you weren't quite ready, it was a phone call. Now, you could say I'm lying, but I know that I'm not lying. And you could choose to believe that or not believe that. But the fact of the matter is she's so triggered by this that every tweet response she had to me on a back and forth we had three weeks ago was like, liar, liar, nefarious liar. And it's like, you think I give a shit enough? Like, Candace, you're not... You think you're like this huge thing. You're really not. You're, you just got kind of lucky that Kanye West tweeted that he, he likes your stuff, and then your name got bigger that way. But I've never put more than two thoughts behind, you know, uh, debating you compared to anybody else who I put on that list. I put Bill Crystal on that list. I put David Frum on that list. Obviously, Ann Coulter was on that list, and she had backed out of a debate with me. Uh, I, you know, I'll talk to virtually anybody. Uh, and so the idea that, like, I would like go out of my way or something to specifically make up this rumor about Candace Owens and ooh, how, um, you know, she's too scared. Utter nonsense. Now, I will say this. Is it possible that what Politicon told me wasn't true? Of course it's possible. Because, and you know why I know that? Because the Jesse Lee Peterson thing wasn't true. And I actually believe Jesse. So what happened was um, I was told that Jesse Lee Peterson didn't want to debate me. Um, and that just, that just wasn't true because Jesse Lee Peterson 100% would have debated me, and he made that crystal clear, and then I went on his show, uh, you know, whatever, however long after Politicon. Everybody knows my appearance on Jesse Lee Peterson's show, and I sincerely and genuinely believe Jesse Lee Peterson when he says, hey, man, um, they never came to me at all about that. I 100% believe him because I think he would have said yes. He's not the, the kind of person who would, who would say no to something like that. So what I will say, Candace, is, is it possible that what they told me wasn't true and that your team never told them you, you weren't ready? Sure, of course it's possible. But if this is all just a misunderstanding and if it's all, you know, some sort of miscommunication where I was told something that wasn't true, well, then maybe you could stop being triggered by it and you could say, you know what, I'll accept the debate. Why not? Why not? Let's do it. So uh, I want to leave you guys with this thought, because this had me laughing as well, this was the gist of the conversation that Candace Owens and I had on Twitter going back about three weeks. This is from the progressive voice. He says, I can't stop laughing at this Candace Owens-Kyle Klinsky situation. Kyle Klinsky says, your team told me you aren't ready for a one-versus-one debate. Candace Owens, what? That's a lie. I was at my sister's wedding. Kyle Klinsky, so are you ready to debate this year? Candace, no. I mean, that's kind of what it is, right? That's kind of exactly what it is. So, um, funny enough, what I would say to Candace is, as they say, oh, it's like punching down to, to debate Kyle. No, any politician debating you would be a step down for them because they're politicians and they should debate other politicians. This idea of like every eight and a half minutes, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gets some other dunderhead begging her to debate him, whether it's the barstool sports guy or Ben Shapiro every 12 seconds or whoever else, 
She's always getting, debate me, debate me, debate me, debate me. She's a congresswoman. She's busy, you know, legislating. <laughs> that important thing that is her job. Her job is not to debate anybody who's, who's not a, her opponent in a political race. So, but again, when it comes to the person who co-founded the group that got her elected, for some reason, they all run away when it comes time to whether or not they would debate me. They all scatter. They all run away. Now, I will give credit to Charlie Kirk, because Charlie Kirk did share a stage with me. We had a panel discussion called How the Hell Are We Going to Get Along at last year's Politicon. Surprisingly, him and I actually agreed on some things. It's crystal clear that he's willing to share that stage. He's willing to have that debate. Um, but Ben Shapiro, Ann Coulter, Candace Owens, all of a sudden, they're screaming, debate me, and everybody under the sun, and then all of a sudden... And by the way, Candace did that too last year. She, I was at my sister's wedding. I'm sure she was at her sister's wedding. But leading up to Politicon, everybody thought she was going, including Candace. And there are tweets of her before last year's Politicon going after, like, celebrities saying, debate me, debate me, debate me at Politicon. So, um, but when it comes, all, all of a sudden, when it comes to debating somebody who's actually in that same space you're in, this new media space, all of a sudden, who's this guy, bro? Who's this guy? I'm punching below my weight. Oh, the creator of Justice Democrats, which was massively successful and got plenty of lefties elected and is changing the Democratic Party. Oh, the guy who's been on Joe Rogan at least two times and, and is uh, going on in the future. And the guy who's been on Fox News a bunch of times, the guy who's well-known in left-wing political circles and new media circles and has about 700,000 YouTube subscribers. Who's this guy, bro? Liar. Spear merchant. Liar. If that's what makes you sleep at night to be convinced that I'm some short and nefarious liar, that's totally fine with me, but I'm pretty sure almost everybody can see through you. Okay, let's, uh, let's do the Anthony Scaramucci story. Hey. So Anthony Scaramucci has been in the news a lot recently because he ever so tepidly criticized Trump, and then him and Trump have been going back and forth. So now he's a hero in mainstream media because, um, he did the exact kind of criticism of Trump that they love, which is, hey, man, I don't even disagree with him on policy. I just think that, you know, he's kind of unhinged and, and definitely a bigot and kind of mean on social media. So, yeah. And, again, they, they bask in that. They swim in that. They adore that kind of criticism of Trump. So now what I'm about to show you pissed me off even more. Anthony Scaramucci, the former brief communications director for President Donald Trump, who has returned who has, excuse me, turned on the administration in recent days, gave an interview to Vanity Fair in which he presented a lofty psychoanalysis, including a prediction that Trump will drop out of the presidential race in March 2020. Quote, he's going to drop out of the race because it's going to become very clear. Okay, it'll be March of 2020. He'll likely drop out by March of 2020. It's going to become very clear that it's impossible for him to win, the Mooch predicted. 
And is this the kind of guy that's going to want to be humiliated and lose as a sitting president? Okay, for those of you who don't know, this is completely and utterly made up. He just pulled this out of his ass, totally made up, based on absolutely nothing. So I'm begging and pleading with mainstream media, stop giving this guy a platform. Stop giving him a platform. And you know what's happening, right? And this is the first thing that pops in my mind as I'm seeing now all these stories with Anthony Scaramucci. He's morphing into the next Michael Avenatti. Now, I'm not saying he's a criminal in a, in a thousand ways. I, maybe he is. I don't know. But I'm not saying he is. But the bottom line is, this is a person who is just, he's a grifter. So for Avenatti, he saw this lane, oh, anti-Trump lane, and I'm going to pretend to be the guy who's really, really hard on Trump. So he became a media darling. He knows how to talk, and he was really hard on Trump, and they all swooning for him, spawned all over him. And this is what's happening with Scaramucci now. Ooh, it's even sexier because he used to be in Trump's team, and now he's not on Trump's team, and now he's sniping at Trump, and he's voicing tepid criticism of Trump. Oh, he's one of the good guys now. We'll put a camera on him, give him 40,000 interviews. And this is how stupid our media is, man. Our mainstream media is beyond abysmal. They're a joke. They're embarrassing. Um, what else is there to say about this? He said Trump is going to drop out because it's going to be clear that he can't win. And Donald Trump started campaigning for his reelection before earlier than any other president in American history. Let me repeat that. Donald Trump started campaigning for his reelection earlier than any president in American history. You want to know why? Because he wants to get reelected. He's got a giant ego, and that ego will lead him to never think he's going to lose. Because all he'll do is deflect blame and deflect criticism and say, no, all oh, the economy's bad. Blame the Fed. Blame the Democrats. Blame this. Blame that. It's not me. I'm doing a great job. I'm doing a tremendous job. We're going to make America great again. It's going to be unbelievable. How do you not know this? No, but the thing is, doesn't matter to Anthony Scaramucci. All he cares about is, am I getting the attention? Oh, I'm getting the media attention? I'll just say whatever the fuck I want. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Trump's going to drop out. I'll drop out by uh, March 2020. Just making shit up. Just make, Stop giving these anti-Trump grifters a platform. Just because somebody is nominally anti-Trump doesn't mean they're good. Doesn't mean they're right about everything or anything. So, and it's just, you tee it up and make it easy for Trump, too. Because you know how easy it is to mock this guy and go after him because of the nature of his shitty criticisms? You tee up for Trump. And then Trump's like, okay, yummy in my tummy. And he goes on a fucking tweet storm ripping Anthony Scaramucci. And it, listen, he's the president, and you could argue it's unpresidential. True. But it's also not unmerited because they got this guy who knows Dickie McGeezak's out there making insanely dumb predictions based on nothing. Trump knows he's not going to drop out by March 2020. Trump knows he wants to win re-election and he'll stop at nothing and try to get re-elected. So for this guy to just say, oh, yeah, he's going to drop out by March 2020, you're teeing it up for Trump and making it so he'll knock it out of the park easy. Because this guy's a charlatan and this guy's a fraud and this guy has nothing to say. He just wants to bask in the fucking glory of the lights of the media. How did they not get this? Did you not learn with Avenatti? I remember disagreeing with some people in my own audience on Avenatti when I was like, I don't trust this guy at all. 
he's obviously a grifter. He's obviously a charlatan. He obviously sees an angle here. And people were arguing with me. Oh, no, he's a strong voice against Trump, and he said some good things. You're not giving him a fair shot, Kyle. Boom, fast forward, and, and what did we find out? He's up on, like, 8,900 charges and fucking stealing from people and committing fraud and all types of shit. So, listen, I got a good sense, particularly when it comes to the political landscape as to who's serious and who ain't serious. And, and Anthony Scaramucci is nowhere near serious. And, you know, it, just so everybody knows, and I'm sure all of you know already, but this is no defense of Trump. Nobody's better at arguing against Trump than I am. But when you tee up idiots for Trump to destroy because they have shitty criticisms of Trump, it helps them. So stop giving this guy a platform. He's got nothing of substance to say. And I think deep down all these clowns know it. Okay. All right, let's talk about um, Trump's former campaign advisor, or campaign manager, actually. And then we'll finish with Tap Jaker. So President Trump's former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, went on Fox News, and um, he gave this hilarious nickname to Donald Trump that you're going to hear at the end here. Let's watch, and then I'll, I'll give you my breakdown of why everything they're saying about the economy is nonsense. Meanwhile, President Trump is telling voters in New Hampshire last night that he is their only chance to keep the economy strong. Listen. Businessman the other day, one of the most successful guys in the country. I've never liked him, never liked him. He never liked me, I never liked him. I see him in the White House. I said, What are you doing here? He said, I'm working to make sure you get elected. I said, You gotta be kidding. You don't like me, I don't like you. What the hell is this all about? He said, That's right, we've had our differences. I haven't liked you. But to be honest with you, Mr. President, I have no choice. I said, you're right. You're right. First thing I've ever heard him say that I agreed with. He got no choice. He got no choice. Well, recent numbers show jobless claims of 220,000. Summer youth unemployment rate falling to a half-century low. And the overall unemployment rate at a near 50-year low. Our next guest was in the front row at last night's rally in New Hampshire, former Trump campaign manager and author Corey Lewandowski. Corey, great to see you. Uh, you know, let's start with the economy because he hit on all bases. I mean, he made an appeal or he made clear his appeal to all levels, all strata, economic strata in our society, from the top business leaders uh, to the blue-collar workers. They are all connected. It's this idea that a rising tide lifts all boats, right? This is just the beginning. It's because of the deregulation environment that he's cutting those overburdened regulations in Washington, coupled with the biggest tax cuts that our nation's ever seen, means more people have more opportunity, more businesses have opportunity to grow, and everybody is feeling that benefit right now. Yeah. And look, we saw the stock market drop a little bit,
but you don't see the mainstream media talking about the market today that was up over 300. They're right. only there to chastise this president. They're very dishonest about it. And, you know, what was interesting was he, he, significant, he significantly said that, that this is – this is benefiting the blue-collar workers more than any other level of society. This is exactly the group of people that the Democrats kept going on and on about during the Obama administration. We're trying to help them. Uh, they never gained a foot, foothold at all on, econ on the economic ladder during the Obama administration, whereas now their wages are going up. The job situation has never been better. It's exactly those people that Democrats thought they had in his pocket that he is helping the most. That's why we see states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan turning out in record numbers to support this president at these rallies. You know, I was with the president in Cincinnati, Ohio, two weeks ago. I was with him last night in Manchester, New Hampshire, you know, my home state. These crowds are not the typical country club Republicans. These are the people who get up and go to work every day, and they know that the man sitting behind the resolute desk in the Oval Office is fighting for them, fighting against China, because on a level playing field, we are the greatest country in the world, and we win every single time. He is bringing those jobs back here. I like to call Donald Trump the blue-collar billionaire. The blue-collar billionaire. Wow. That's special. That's a special nickname. Um, so I like when Trump told a story about running into another billionaire in the White House and uh, asking the guy, they don't like each other, but asking, like, what are you doing here? The guy's like, I'm trying to get you elected. And he said, oh, I have no choice. Because no story better illustrates our point, not his point. His point's like, isn't it great? One billionaire trying to get another billionaire elected? Yeah, Don, the reason he's doing that is because he knows it would be good for him and his fellow billionaires. So, it, like, without even trying, he proved the left narrative correct of class politics, of the, like, the uber-wealthy elite owner class looking out for themselves and screwing workers. And he tells this story at his rally to a room full of many people who are presumably workers, and a lot of them, if, at this point, if you're at a Trump rally, you're probably a little too far gone to even get it. But, yeah, like, the story he's telling is about how you're a sucker. And one billionaire is voting for another billionaire because he knows I'll look out for the interests of billionaires against workers. Isn't it great, fellow workers out here? Blue-collar billionaire. Oh, my God. What a fucking cringy nonsense thing to say. Now, um, the other thing is, and I, I always tell you guys this stuff in advance, so you're not surprised when you stumble across stuff like this. If you notice... They bring up, oh, the unemployment rate. Oh, the unemployment rate is low, yes. That is not a very good indicator of the health of the economy. And the argument, uh, you know, I've given is one that I remember from uh, when I was in college. Uh, the professor said, we can get 0% unemployment. And everybody's like, what? How? He said, slavery. <laughs> so is that, is, that, is that the end all be all? Like, oh, everybody's working. Sure, some of it's by forced labor, but minor details, bro, minor details, bro. Like, well, no, like, that's massively important. What are the nature of the jobs? This is the gig economy, as people call it. And also, Trump used to cite what's called the U6 unemployment rate, which is the way that the official unemployment rate is calculated is total nonsense. 
They pretend like, oh, have you been looking for a job for X amount of time? Okay, you don't count anymore. What? That doesn't mean they have a job because they've been out of job for a long time. Like, ridiculous. So we used to cite what's called the U6 unemployment rate, which is a more accurate reflection of the real unemployment rate in the country. Now he does the official unemployment rate because it makes him look good. And also there's this other problem of unemployed and underemployed, which is you're way overqualified for your job. You're not making as much money as you want. You're working part-time when you want to work full-time. And that's about 13% when you look at unemployed plus underemployed. 13%. So, you know, it's easy. There's an old saying, there's lies, damned lies, and statistics. So you could paint whatever picture you want by cherry-picking your staff. See? Look. Look, everything's wonderful. See? Oh, this proves it with the numbers we gave you. What about the, you know, the wagon load of numbers that prove the exact opposite case? What about that? They don't have a response there. Um, and then the other thing is, Lewandowski was bragging about deregulation and the tax cut bill, about how this helps workers and makes Trump the blue-collar billionaire. The deregulation helps nobody but Wall Street. Nobody but Wall Street. And this is the same philosophy that led to not only the Great Recession, the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession, but the Great Depression. Deregulation always leads to boom-bust cycles in the economy. You say, oh, get rid of the rules, and the smartest guys in the room on Wall Street will all make intelligent decisions, like the invisible hand of the marketplace will be working. But no, they make terrible decisions that benefit themselves in the short run at the expense of the long-term viability of the economy. And you will see boom-bust cycles, and that's what we're seeing right now. Now, they said, like, oh, but the market bounced back after a, day, a few days where it fell. I mean, how cocksure are these arrogant clowns? Listen, man, at some point, it's all going to tank. Yes, we're having up and down, up and down, up and down at the moment. But all the signs are there. We will hit a major recession within the next year, for sure, for sure. So, you know, for him to act like, oh, the media doesn't talk about it when it goes up. Actually, yes, it does, because there are these networks that show the ups and the downs, and the whole point of the network is to show what's happening with the market. And, yes, it's, it, they've talked about it when it goes up. They've talked about it when it goes down. Are you kidding me? Nonstop, they talk about it when it goes, oh, look, we broke another record. Woo! But, again, smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors. The thing that's so fucked up about the stock market is that when the stock market is doing well, that's not necessarily a reflection of how the workers are doing. But when the stock market tanks, it definitely does hurt the workers. So it's like the worst of both worlds when it comes to working people in the stock market. And, um, yeah, buckle up because a lot of bad stuff is coming. There's been a lot of tricks that make it look like, oh, everything's great, like stock buybacks, for example, were a huge thing that made it look like, ooh, see, the economy is doing so wonderful. But that's just nothing but a greedy trick. So um, look out is my warning, but to use the tax cuts for the rich and deregulation as your argument as to why Trump's the blue-collar billionaire is like using Dick Cheney's Iraq war as to why, an argument as to why Dick Cheney is so moral. It's just the exact opposite of the truth. Deregulation only helps Wall Street. The tax cuts overwhelmingly went to the rich, gutting the estate tax, cutting the capital gains rate, cutting the top marginal rate, Uh, In fact, in that tax bill, everybody who makes $75,000 a year or less um, gets their taxes raised over a decade. So it's sad to me that this stuff tricks anybody because this is a government of buying four billionaires to the point where Trump even said it in the middle of that speech. 
All right, final story of the day. So let me explain to everybody why Cap Jaker is really one of the most odious figures in media. Now, that's a strong claim. I understand that. Many people will disagree with that. But there's a very clear and important reason as to why I say that. Because what he does is a superb job normalizing right-wing framing while acting like he's not doing that and he's just a straight shooter. And if anything, since he's anti-Trump, he has this out of like, you can't accuse me of doing right-wing framing. I'm the, guy, I'm the toughest guy on Trump that there is. But usually the nature of his criticisms of Trump are petty and silly and not really substantive. But that, that's what makes him so, so dangerous and so odious is that as he acts like, I'm part of the resistance, and I'm a lefty, and I'm a straight shooter, he actually works overtime to normalize, you know, a default right-wing agenda, okay? So I have a great example of that here. Um, He's talking to uh, Pete Buttigieg about war, and look at the way in which Tapper's adversarial. He likes to, you know, pride himself on being a tough interviewer and, and stuff. But look at, look at the framing of the questions, because, again, the trick is almost always in the framing. Like, what are, you, what are the assumptions baked into your question? Because they're incredibly important. So let's watch, and then we'll discuss. President Trump met with his national security team on Friday to weigh this new possible peace deal with the Taliban that theoretically could end the war in Afghanistan. Uh, You have said that you agree with the president that U.S. service members need to come home and soon. Uh, But I want to share with you what retired General David Petraeus, who led service members in Afghanistan and Iraq under President Obama, wrote in the Wall Street Journal a few days ago, quote, a complete military exit from Afghanistan today would be even more ill-advised and risky than the Obama administration's disengagement from Iraq in 2011. If the Trump administration orders a full pullout from Afghanistan, there is considerably less doubt about what will happen. Full-blown civil war and the reestablishment of a terrorist sanctuary, unquote. Now, you told me in the CNN debates that you would bring U.S. service members home within your first year as president. Do you support the president's potential peace deal in Afghanistan, and how do you respond to the concerns of General Petraeus? Well, the problem with the president's path is it seems to be dictated by the American political calendar. Uh, You add to that the fact that uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, any real role for the legitimately elected Afghan government. And it is a recipe for us winding up having to go back because of a problem that unfolds. Uh, Look, we really want to leave well, and we're going to leave. Remember, leaving Afghanistan is the one thing that the right, the left, the Taliban, the government, uh, and the international community all agree on. So the real question here is, are we going to leave well or are we going to leave poorly? To do it right, we need to make sure we get the basic assurances about counterterrorism that we need and that the Afghan government is on the table so that there's a formula for stability. We have leverage in this conversation. It is in the interest of even the Taliban uh, to make sure that uh, we have the right kind of political settlement. 
Uh, but there has to be an actual strategy, and it can't be driven by the timeline of uh, the American election. It has to be driven uh, by our ability to get a deal that makes sense. You told me that you wanted to get U.S. service members out within the first year. I mean, is that is that not too quickly? Of course I want to get, I, I'd rather we be done with this today. I mean, right now, somebody is packing their bags for Afghanistan. Uh, 18 years after 9-11, wondering why we're there. It's very clear that we need to bring this to a close. Now, we may need some kind of special operations or intelligence capability, just as we would in many hotspots around the world, to protect American interests. But right now, the only way that we can get to that withdrawal, bring this thing to a close, is to have a political settlement that has the parties at the table. And while it's good to hear that there are talks going on, it's concerning to hear that those talks are leaving the Afghan government at the sidelines. All right, let me play. I got to hear that last quick question again by Tapper. Let me see if I can find it. A formula for that uh, we, uh, the time of the American election in the first year. Here we go. Listen to this. You told me that you wanted to get U.S. service members out within the first year. I mean, is that is that not too quickly? I mean, listen, Pete, Pete Buttigieg there was like doing a little bit of, he was being a politician and he was giving like, well, listen, we got to get out as quick as possible, but I don't agree with the way in which Trump is getting out, yada, yada. So he was kind of being a standard politician there. But T- Tapper's questions were so bad that he made Pete Buttigieg look like he was way further to the left than he is. Because you heard it. He's, hey, you said you want to get out in the first year. Does it make sense to get out that quickly? Hey, look, listen to what General Petraeus, a criminal, by the way, listen to what, by the way, General Petraeus also floated the idea of literally arming al-Qaeda in Syria to fight ISIS. He literally floated that idea. But Jake Tapper, you know, cites him like, oh, well, he says this. So it's, it's adversarial in defense of the status quo. That's what Jake Tapper is doing. He's adversarial in defense of the status quo in defense of the military-industrial complex, in defense of business as usual. He's adversarial from a right-wing perspective. That's what that is. Now, he didn't have to frame the questions like that. The question is framed as Trump uh, is looking to maybe get out of Afghanistan. Here's why that's a bad idea. Why do you disagree with the experts who say this is a bad idea? That is just disgusting, the way he framed that. You know some questions that... I would have asked if we were talking about Afghanistan. Um, we've been there 18 years. What makes you think that staying there in 19th is going to change anything that wasn't changed in the first 18? That's definitely a question that I would ask. Hey, we've been there 18 years. What is the definition of victory, and when can we declare it and come home? See, that's an adversarial question on the side of the American people and on the side of common sense and on the side of getting out of this endless war. Another question I would ask is, we wasted $2 trillion. At what point is it too much? How much would it have to cost? Three, $3 trillion? $4 trillion? $5 trillion? How much would it have to cost in Afghanistan? Again, adversarial on the side of getting out. Um, the Taliban today, here's another question you could ask. How is the war a good thing when the Taliban controls more territory today than they did when we originally invaded? 
How's, how can you justify the war when the Taliban controls more of the territory today than they did when we originally invaded? Um, here's another one. The original reason given to going into Afghanistan was to get Osama bin Laden. He's now been dead for years. So how can we justify staying there? Again, listen, guys, I'm not a fucking genius over here, okay? I'm just going, here's the reality. Maybe I should base questions off of the reality, and maybe I should be adversarial from the perspective that the American people agree with, which brings me to the last question you cast on Afghanistan, which is the Afghanistan war as of 2013 polled with a 17% favorability, which means the war in Afghanistan is more unpopular than the war in Vietnam. Given that fact... You would have to convince the American people as to why we should stay there. So go ahead. Make your argument as to why we should stay there uh, against the wishes of the overwhelming majority of the American people. See, guys, these are the questions that, are, that a real journalist who's adversarial against power would ask. But Tap Jaker is not that. He's the exact opposite. And this is why, by the way, he's taken like so seriously and beloved in these elite circles is because he's, he's faux adversarial. It's like everything backs up the establishment that he talks about. So he's got the perfect mix of like, ooh, I'm really anti-Trump and isn't that awesome? I'm going to like tone police him for his tweets. And then, you know, in the next breath, say like war is always good and tax cuts are good and corporations are great and... It's just, it's disgusting, man. He does such a terrible job. And um, you need to be able to see through his particular brand of, of shittiness because it's unique. And it's odious because people don't even realize that that's what he's doing. See, somebody who's not as versed in this stuff as I am and you are might watch that segment and go, ooh, that's interesting. So he's asking a tough question of Pete Buttigieg and asking a tough question of, you know, what the Trump administration is trying to do now in Afghanistan. But again, the perspective matters. Everybody's got an ideology. Everybody's got an ideology. It's just a matter of, you know, how are you framing the questions to coincide with that ideology? And Jake Tapper is, in a subtle way, letting it out here, that his ideology is pro-war, pro-status quo, pro-military industrial complex, and that, you know, the perspective is anybody who wants to draw down in these wars, the burden's on them to say why that's a good thing. When in reality, it should be the opposite, that the burden's on the warmongers to explain why endless war is always the right thing. All right. That is our show, bitch. Love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.